chapter 33. Job chapter 33. And at this point, as we're in the last segment of the book of Job, tonight's message is titled Contentment in the Will of God. Contentment in the Will of God. Because we are learning today what Job learned then when he was going through these trials. What Job learned in his trials, we are learning right now, church. And that is summed up in one word, patience. Patience. It seems like every time we are waiting for maybe a day for this all to be over, this season to, to come to an end, then we, we hear about uh, just a timeline that is prolonged and stretched out a little longer. And what we're learning is patience and endurance just the way that Job learned it. But an encouragement that we can have today, and it's something that I, wanna, I want you to really pay attention to, and even maybe write this down, is that you would not harden your heart in the trial. You know, it's so easy to get frustrated and upset and, and maybe angry at the current situation, at the suffering that you see around us, maybe at the injustice that you see around us, at the even politics that are taking place. But our responsibility as a church is to look to the Lord and say, Lord, protect my heart from becoming hard. And that's exactly why we want to learn today what it means to be content in the will of God because Job was struggling with that, with contentment. And he did not know how to use his suffering as a tool for help. Instead, in some occasions, it was harmful. And I want you to realize that suffering is helpful. It is a tool that can become helpful if we turn to God for understanding if we turn to God for endurance, and if we turn to God now for deliverance, it then becomes a tool for, to be helpful in our lives. However, suffering can become also harmful when we allow it to harden our hearts against the will of God. And I want to ask you tonight, how is your heart today? Because it's too easy to have a hard heart right now. It's too easy to be able to look to the Lord and ask Him why. And, and when we don't get the answers that we want, and when we want them now, we become to get frustrated. But I want us to learn uh, uh, really what uh, Elihu, Job's last friend, or the last discourse of Job's friend, what he has to say. Because although he is declaring a lot immaturely or impulsively, we are able to learn a lot about the character of God through this last discourse in Elihu's speech. And we've seen that in chapter 32, he made an introduction as to what he was going to say. And in verse 6, in verse 10, and in verse 17, he used the word, my opinion. <laughs> he said, my opinion. And here he's going to contradict Job or of Job's innocence or Job's integrity now for the next few chapters. But he uses now and he opens up with the word my opinion. And, and it's important that we realize that because today we're not looking for opinions. We're looking for the will of God. And, I don't, and what, what is it that you're looking for tonight? Are you looking for someone's opinion? Or are you looking for the will of God in this season for your life? You see, opinions are only going to bring you confusion. But the will of God is going to bring you courage. 
And I'm going to say that again because I think that's something that we need to hear. Uh, opinions will only bring you confusion, but now the will of God will bring you now courage. And that's exactly what we need. We need courage because when we have courage, we can be content in the will of God. Contentment means I'm grateful, I'm filled with gratitude in God's will for my life. And Christian contentment is important because that's where you start to find delight. That's where you start to find peace and joy in God's wise plan for your life. And you humbly allow Him to direct you in it. Are you allowing the Lord to humbly direct you in the plan that He has for us right now? That we would accept every decision from God, every condition from God, that we would submit willingly to God without any type of reluctance to say, Lord, if this is what you have for me, I'm not going to accept it with reluctance. I'm going to accept it with peace and with joy, receiving your will in my life with a humble way. Why is that? Why can we do that? Because we realize the sovereignty of God, that everything that God carefully measures, everything that God does, it comes into our lives. Everything that the Lord does that comes into our lives first has to pass through the wall of protective love of the Father. Just think about that. Anything that comes to you first must pass through the wall of the protective love of God. And yes, now Elihu is going to speak now with ignorance, maybe with maybe arrogance. Maybe he lacks awareness when it comes to pride and immaturity and accurately quotes Job right here. And he's angry because he wanted to be right now this, this friend of his. And he's motivated by his pride because he thinks he's right and all of Job's other friends were wrong. And, and you see that his anger starts to manifest itself. And there's a big difference between righteous anger, anger and self-righteous anger. You see, righteous anger seeks love and restoration. But self-righteous anger is one that's motivated by pride and about being right. Uh, 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 it's motivated by attention. And, and our motives are so important as to why we are seeking to bring now biblical guidance to someone. Because we don't give them counsel. We give them biblical guidance in their trial. It's not about what our experience was. It's about what the Bible says. And what Job needed from his friends was understanding and love. He didn't need accusations. He didn't need an argument. He needed understanding and love. And I pray that today we are Christians that are compassionate, that are patient, that are able to extend compassion and love. Warren Worsby said this. He said it best. He said, truth without love is brutality. <laughs> and love without truth is hypocrisy. Well, isn't that heavy? Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. You know what they were giving Job? They were giving him brutality. They were giving him now the, the, this, this truth applied in the wrong sense. It had absolutely no love and it was brutal now. And Job thought that God didn't want to speak to him, but, but his friend here reminds him. That God does speak in dreams, in trials. He speaks through people. He speaks through circumstances. And that, that God does not have to defend His actions, nor God doesn't have to defend His will of what He does in our lives. Let's read Job 33 as Elihu now continues this discourse of His. 
And it says, but please, Job, Job 33, verse 1, as he's going to challenge Job. He's going to challenge Job's defense. He's going to challenge Job's integrity. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. Hear my words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we pray, God, that you would just speak to us, Lord, through this time in your word, Lord, that it would be you speaking and not me, Lord. I pray you would anoint this word, Lord, that we would, Lord, not grow hard in our hearts, Lord, but that we would be content in your will, Lord, that we would not struggle with your will for our lives. And that, Lord, every season would be helpful as we look to you and not harmful as we resist you and become angry. In Jesus' name, and together we said, from wherever you are, Amen. Amen. So we see here in the first three verses of chapter 33 that Elihu opens up and notice what he says, listen to me, listen to my speech, I'm going to talk. And he uses this pronoun, my, I, look at my words, listen to my mouth. You see that he's really filled with pride, filled with arrogance. He thinks he's going to bring something that his other friends were able to bring. And he's, speaking, he's saying, I'm speaking with all truth, with all sincerity. I am right in what I say now. And in verse 4 and 5, he, he is now saying or stating that he is filled with the Spirit of God. Let's read verse 4 and 5. It says, the Spirit of God has made me. He's saying what I have is anointed. I, I've come with something that's a revelation from God. And the breath of Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me and take your stand. I'm anointed. I have knowledge. Listen to my words. I'm about to speak. But if you have something to say, please, now say it now. Because I really want to hear your case. I want you, I want you to stand up and build your case against me, Elihu is saying. In verse 6 and 7, notice that he self-proclaims himself to be a spokesman before the Lord on behalf of Job. And he says this, Truly, I am your spokesman before God. Now, who asked him to be this spokesman? Nobody did. <laughs> and you see how he feels that although he is the youngest of the friends, that he is the wisest. And he's making a very now horrible mistake now in the fact that he is speaking and he's exalting himself. And you start to see his pride because in verse 6 it says, I have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy, heavy on you. And he's saying, well, Job, don't be scared. I'm not going to be like the other friends. Yes, I am wise. But my hand's not going to be heavy against you. I, I'm, I'm going to be helpful. I'm not going to be harmful to you. Although he ends up committing the same now mistake that his friends did. What is it that this friend needed in life? It's something that we need as well when it comes to comforting others through God's Spirit in their moment of trial. We need to learn self-control. We need to learn when it is the right time to speak and when it's not the right time to speak. Because sometimes the ministry of your presence and your prayers are enough for someone that's going through a season of suffering. In fact, we can get in trouble very easily when we start to over-communicate something that we believe is going to comfort them, but it's not from God. It's from our own knowledge. And knowledge doesn't comfort anyone. Love does. 
And love is only able to be exercised in wisdom. Do you notice how this is so important that he came in very unexperienced and did not know how to handle the situation because he spoke out of turn? In Proverbs 10, 19 uh, through verse 21, it says this, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. When you're speaking a lot and you think that you have a lot to say, notice that in the multitude of your words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips, so hold his lips back, is wise. The tongue of the righteous is, a, is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. The wisest thing to know, to do, is to know, is to realize when it is that the Lord wants you to speak and when He wants you to remain silent. When the Lord wants you to speak and when the Lord wants you to remain silent. Now he's going to accuse Job now from verses 8 through 11 after he said that his hand was not going to be heavy upon his friend. He's going to condemn him instead of comfort him. And it says here now in verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard of the sound of your words saying, I've already heard what you have to say. This is what you've said, verse 9, I am pure without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Now is this what Job said? He didn't say this. Job did not say that he was sinless. Job said that he was blameless. Notice there's a difference there. Job did not say that he was sinless. He didn't say there's no iniquity in me. He said that he was blameless. And the difference between that is that the blamelessness has, is focused around an event and the sinlessness is focused around a nature. Job knew that he was a sinful man in nature. However, he knew that he was blameless in the event as to why the suffering came upon him. He said, there is nothing that I have done specifically for this to come upon me. Therefore, I know that I'm blameless before God on this event. He knew that he was a sinful man, but he also knew that he was a blameless man. That's why we did today, even in our sinful nature, can remain blameless before the Lord as we say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit of God. He only claimed that there was not a, some type of special sin or, or that made him a target for this, this, this special catastrophe that had taken place in his life. And now this friend Elihu of him is bearing false witness because this is not what Job said about himself. Now in verse 12, no, notice this, or in verse 10, notice this. It says, yet he finds an occasion against you. This is what you're saying, Job, that you've done nothing, but God is now targeting you. He counts me as his enemy. He puts, his feet in, in the, he puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. You feel that God has trapped you, that he's against you, that he's after you now. Verse 10 and 11. Now in verse 12, it says this. Elihu speaks to Job and it says, look, in this you are not righteous. It doesn't look, Job, you are not as righteous as you think you are. In fact, you're wrong. And God is much greater than what you believe and that you think that you are right before God. You're just a mere man. And he says this, I will answer you for God is greater than man. And the next three chapters, he talks about the greatness of God. But the greatness of God doesn't mean that God is out of reach from us men. It doesn't mean that, that we, He is out of our reach in relationship. It doesn't mean that we cannot be right before the Lord because we can be through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And look what he says here in verse now 13. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Why is it that you're arguing against God? Do you think that, don't you realize that God speaks and he doesn't need your permission as to what he's going to say? Or he doesn't need to give an account to you of what he's going to do. For God may speak in one way or another, yet man does not perceive it. In fact, God may be already speaking, Job, and you don't even realize it. Here's, you think that God is silent, but God is speaking. Stop arguing with His will and listen to what He has to say. Look at it, what it says now in verse 15, because He's going to tell him that God is speaking through dreams. That God is speaking even through suffering He speaks. And God is speaking even through people. Notice in verse 15 it says this as we read, In a dream, in a vision of night, when the deep sleeps falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He's saying God is already maybe speaking to you through a dream while you're sleeping. And, and he speaks now the Lord in this way as a warning to turn man from doing wrong, as it says in verse 17, in order to turn man from his deed or from his wrongdoing and conceal pride from man, or that you would not become proudful. Yes, God can speak through a dream, and he's now explaining this. Does God speak through visions and dreams today normally? Well, yes, God can give you a dream. God can give you a vision. God can even confirm that through his word. And He wants to reveal that to you. But now He's saying look, the Lord is, is being now even protective now of you and allowing you to go through this as a way of protecting you from death and from ultimate destruction. In verse 18, He keeps back His soul from the pit and His life from perishing by the sword. How, what, what is it that God is telling you, Job? In fact, He's telling you that He's protecting you from death and from the grave and from wrongdoing and from pride. So He's allowed all of this to come upon you, Job. You know, it's so important that we really start to, when we think about the justice of God, that we would always think about the grace of God. The justice of God is never without the grace of God. Would you remember that? The, the righteousness of God is never without the mercy of God. Because God is a just God, yes, He will judge sin. However, in His nature, His justice doesn't exist without His mercy. And this is exactly what Elihu was missing. He was speaking about the justice of God, but he forgot to address that in the justice of God, He is a merciful God. And it tells us this in verse 19, man is also chastened as we continue reading because he's saying God is now using or speaking to you, Job, through suffering to save you from death, to allow you to go through this, to rescue you. And look what he says here in verse 19, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain on many of his bones so that in his life abhors bread. So he doesn't even want to eat and his soul succulent and his soul succulent food, his flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out which, with which one were not seen. And there are oftentimes uh, here Elihu is saying that, that God disciplines people through pain on their bed. And, and at, at death's door, is it, knocking at their door, that the angel of death is waiting for them there. And they don't even have now the, the desire now or the appetite to eat. And, and this is all a mistake of what Elihu is saying. 
Because he's, he's now telling Job that he is deserving of this suffering as a way of God delivering him from some type of sin or consequence. And you notice this, that, that he, he's saying this, it's all a mistake because he doesn't understand the mercy of God. Let's read on in verse 22 and 23, as he says in verse 22, Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the ex ex executioners. This man that is suffering, Elihu is saying, is close to death. But guess what happens here? The Lord is still near him. If there, verse 23, is a messenger for him, a mediator among a thousand to show man his uprightness. Now I want you to underline this word mediator because this is exactly what Job is crying out for. He's crying out for a mediator. He said if there was a mediator, which there is, guess what's going to take place? Is that this mediator would come between man or Job and the Father now and advocate for him and present to him now atonement for his sin now. And notice what he says in verse 23. God is speaking through a messenger or through an angel. Another word for messenger in this context is talking about an angel now or a mediator. Some one among a thousand to show man his uprightness, to make him right. And look what it tells us in verse now 24. That he is gracious to him. And he says, deliver now him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Now what does the mediator do? It delivers us from going to death because the mediator provides a ransom. Do you see how we're learning now the theology or the nature, the study of God through this book as we learn about a mediator that would provide a ransom? What's a ransom? The word ransom, and I want you to write this word next to it, means an atonement. A mediator would come to deliver you from the pit because he would provide a ransom or an atonement now. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it tells us that we have one mediator, and that is Christ Jesus before the Father. And that word ransom or atonement literally means to atone for their sin or to pay or cover their sin by an offering of a substitute. What did our mediator come to do? He came to pay for our sin as a substitute now, he came to provide a ransom for us and to deliver us from now the pit. And, and, and not only would He deliver us from the pit, but He also would he restore us. Notice that through our mediator we get deliverance and restoration. Verse 25, His flesh shall be young like a child, and He shall return to the days of His youth. He shall be strengthened now, and He shall be now returned now to His health. Why? Because He's going to have this mediator and what does this mediator do? Verse 26, he shall pray to God. Does not the Bible tell us that we have one mediator between man and God, and that is Christ Jesus, that prays to God on our behalf? He's going to be interceding to God on your behalf. And, and when he intercedes to God on your behalf, the Father will accept you. This is why this ministry of the mediator is so important, because in verse 26 it says, he shall pray to God and he will delight in him. What is God going to do? The Father, what does the Father do when, when Jesus the Son prays or intercedes for you? It says that the Father delights in you. Because the Son is actively interceding for you. 
He is praying for you so He the Father will delight in Him as Jesus is interceding by praying after the work of atonement. This is amazing. The work of atonement has taken place. You've been delivered from the eternal pit of death. And now the Son, Jesus, is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you so that the Father can delight in you. Do you notice how amazing that, that position of a Christian and how that makes you understand who you are, your identity in Jesus Christ? That's why in Ephesians says that you have been saved by grace and then the Lord has seated you in heavenly places. Because you have been, right, been made right with God through this intercessor, through this mediator, that now the Lord receives you with joy. The Lord receives you now and restores you in verse 26. He shall see His face with joy, for He restores to man His righteousness. Isn't this amazing? Underline that in your Bible, verse 26. That the Lord will receive you with joy as He looks upon you, or He sees His face with joy, and He restores to man His righteousness. What is it that God wants to do? God, through the ministry of the mediator, through the ministry of His Son, is looking to restore now to man the righteousness of His Son. And He does it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He will receive you. He will delight in you. He will restore him. In verse 27, then He looks at man and says, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, and it did not profit me. Now He's going to talk about an attitude now. He's going to talk about an attitude that, that this man that is restored has after being restored. And he says this, look, Job, or a man that is being now restored and redeemed, he will declare to his friends that he was once perverted, that he was twisted from the truth, and, and it was not worth it to live in that lifestyle. It didn't profit me. Isn't that the story of our lives? That when we were far away from the truth, it didn't profit us? He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. That person will be redeemed from his soul from death. Why? Because he will see the light. This is exactly what it, now he's speaking about, a testimony. He's speaking about somebody that is being restored by coming to the Lord through a mediator and a light who's trying to now give some sense to the situation in Job's life by letting him know there is a mediator. Now notice this in verse 29. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with a man. In fact, three times with a man. What does he mean by this? God does this over and over and over with a man. He rescues man from the grave and lets him enjoy the light of life over and over. And in verse 30 it says, To bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. That he would realize the light of life. And he's speaking to this man that must repent of his sin and come now to accept now the light that is in a mediator. Now notice, all of this is true. It's absolutely true. But Job is already right with God. <laughs> and Job is, is being tested by God as God is using Job's life as a display of what righteousness and integrity looks like. And, and just maybe in our lives today, God is using our lives, He's using our church, He's using our time to display through the church what it looks like to be pure, to have integrity and to possess patience and endurance. And maybe we have to learn, what is it, Lord, that you are trying to do with us? Are you using us? 
That you would get the glory from this season in our lives? Verse 31, it says, Give ear, Job, listen to me, hold your peace, and I will speak. Now, he wants to speak now. He wants to continue to sing. He wants them to listen now. And he's very anxious. It tells us this in verse 32, If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. I, I want to see you be right. I want you to have peace now. Listen to me, but if you have something to say that's going to, to now make you right with God, then just say it. Verse 33, if not, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will teach you wisdom. <laughs> Notice how he's wrong. He's wrong because he's not using wisdom. He's using all knowledge. He's not using wisdom. He's using all knowledge. And you know what knowledge does? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Is everything that Elihu said, was it true? Absolutely, it was true. But is he using wisdom to know how to apply knowledge? He's not doing that. There are a lot of us sometimes that we know about God. We know the truth that it says in His Word, but we don't know how to apply that truth and we fail when it comes to wisdom. Why? Maybe because we're zealous. And, and, and zeal without wisdom is immaturity. Zeal without wisdom is immaturity. And that's exactly what you see in Elihu, immaturity. Because he's zealous. He wants to jump to the occasion and he wants to use facts. He wants to use truth. But he doesn't know how to utilize them with wisdom. Now notice in, in chapter 34, as he starts to now proclaim the justice of God and how God is just. And God has every reason to do what he does. And he will never do anything in an unfair way. Have you ever thought, well this is unfair. I don't know why God is doing this. Well now he's going to explain to Job, God is very fair. God is not unjust. In fact, He's a just God. And if He was not just, then He would not be God Almighty judge. Because there is no judge that can really rule or apply judgment if He were not a just judge. And that's exactly what He's going to tell him in chapter 33. God is just, therefore you can't accuse God of partiality or impartiality. Therefore, God sees all we do and He judges sin righteously. Yes, that is true. But then He says, because of these things when it comes to theology, because of this truth, you must realize, Job, that you have rebelled against God and you ought to confess and get right with God. You see, this is not true. He is not coming to Job with a heart of restoration. He is not. He's coming to Job with a heart that wants to be right. That heart never reaches someone. Notice in verse 34, it says, Elihi uh, further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to those who have knowledge, for the ear tests words, and as now a palate tastes food, let us choose justice for ourselves, and let us know among ourselves what is good. Look, look what he says, choose justice. Let us choose justice. Let us discern justice. Let us know what is good. Just like an, an ear can hear, just like a, a, our mouths can taste. Now let us discern what is good and let us utilize wisdom. Let us know what is good, man. Speaking to the friends of Job. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Verse 5, now he speaks about Job in front of him to his friends. And look what he says, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Look at what Job has said. He's saying that I'm innocent now. And, and he's really what he's doing in, in making himself innocent. And he's coming against the justice of God. He's, got, he's calling God a liar almost. 
That God is not a just God, that God is fair, that He's suffering without sin. How can that possibly be? You see how he's misunderstood, misinterpreted the suffering of Job? You see, Zophar was the one that said that Job had said he was sinless, but that's not what Job said. You see how he's, he's judging Job here? And he's taking the accusations of what others said about him and he's applying them to them. For in verse 6 it says, Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Saying this is what Job is telling us. Verse 7, What man is like Job? Who, who is like Job that is irreverent in his talk, in fact? Who drinks scorn like water? He's being very disrespectful now. Job is disrespectful, he's saying now. Who goes in company with the workers of iniquity. In fact, not only is he disrespectful, he's walking with sinners now in verse 8. And walks with the wicked men. For he has said, if it profits men nothing, that he should delight in God. I've heard many times, and I want you to underline verse 9. Because I've heard many times where people say, Everything that I've done for the Lord and maintaining myself pure and keeping my integrity. And I have to go through all of this. All of that was a waste of time. And you know what happens when people believe that? They, they, their, heart, their heart becomes hardened. And then they start to sin as a result of suffering. And I want us to pay attention to that because it's so, it can be so easy to have that mentality that I'm going to sin as a result of suffering because things are not going my way. In verse 9, they have heard Job say, What, what profit does it have me to maintain my godliness or my integrity? Verse 9, it says, For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. What is it worth it to delight in God? Well, there is a lot worth it to the Lamb God because God never oversees your obedience. He never overlooks your integrity. He notices your integrity and He is still very near to you. Notice in verse 10, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. This is a lie who is still speaking. For be it from God to do wickedness. God is not unfair. God is doing what God needs to do in Job's life. He's saying He deserves it. And from the Almighty to commit iniquity, for He repays man according to His work, and makes man to find a reward according to His way. He, he makes now the man now be repaid for His work. He's rewarding him for His way. This is exactly what Job deserves. God doesn't make mistakes. Understand this. God is not unjust. In verse 12, surely God will never do wickedly. God is never going to twist justice. He's never going to be unfair, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Now, do you think this is unfair? Do you think the Almighty will pervert justice? Do you think God will do something that's unfair? Of course not. God is doing what this man rightly deserves. Do you think God will ever sin or the Almighty ever twist what is true? Absolutely not. Who can give him, verse 13, charge over the earth? Or who has appointed him over the whole earth? If we should set his heart on him, or if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all the flesh would perish together and a man would return to the dust. In fact, who gave God authority? It wasn't us that gave God the authority, who gave God the control over it, or appointed God over the whole earth. God has the authority in himself. And in verse 14 and 50, and if he wants, he can take breath away from man. He can take it away from all humanity in one instance. Now, are all of these things uh, the things that possess our Lord? 
our Father? Absolutely. He is speaking about the sovereignty of God. But He's not applying the sovereignty of God under the context of the mercy of God as well. Now notice this in verse 16. If you have understanding, verse 16, listen to this, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting for you to say, a king, you are worthless, and to nobles you are wicked? Do you think that someone that is unjust will be ruling? Isn't it that God places those that are going to be governing doesn't, in those positions or those offices? Do not they need justice? Will the wicked ever just that way? Or are they fitting for that, for that position? No, they're not. Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the riches more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. God is not partial, guys, he's saying. And God will never appoint anyone to that office who is partial. Therefore, we know that He is ruling from the position of judge in a very right way. Verse 20, In the moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken now. But in the moment that people die, they're shaken. Look what He says in verse 20. And pass away, the mighty are taken away without a hand, without a human hand. Why? He's saying God is in control of this all. He is behind this. God is behind this, he's saying. Verse 21, For his eyes are on the ways of man. God sees everything. God is perfect when it comes to justice. And his justice is revealed this way. His justice is revealing in the manner that he sees everything. And you cannot hide anything from him. He says this, The ways of man, and he, he sees all his steps. There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Yes, we know that God sees everything. That even the workers of iniquity, those that sin, even ourselves, we think that we're hiding, or we think that people are hiding their hidden agenda. They can't hide it before the Lord. The Lord knows. And He sees everything. And it says in verse 23, For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He doesn't ask for permission, the Lord, before he does something. He's telling us in verse 23, he breaks in pieces mighty men without iniquity, and he sets others in their place. In fact, if he wants, he will take someone out of where they're at, and he will break them in pieces or remove them from that place of power, and he will set someone else in their place. Verse 25, Therefore he knows their works and overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He knows what they're doing, and he's crushing them in the night when they don't know he is going to repay them for their deeds. He strikes him as the wicked man in open sight of others because they turn back from him and would not consider any of their ways. Why? Because they don't respect any of the Lord. Guess what the Lord does? He will come and he will judge them when they are not expecting it and he will do it in public and from, uh, in front of others because they've turned their ways in verse 27 from following him and they don't consider the ways of God. He's speaking as if Job is one of those men that are rightly to be judged and to be punished by God and to be disciplined by God because of the justice of God is perfect. You cannot confuse the justice of God in any situation and say, this is the Lord. He is now applying this suffering in all of our lives because we deserve it. Yes, God will use and He will allow in His sovereignty, but God doesn't necessarily now condemn us or pursue us with suffering. In fact, if God is going to pursue us with justice, He also will pursue us at the same time with compassion. 
Notice this in verse 28, so that they counsel the city of the poor and to come to him, this wicked man, they oppress the poor, the wicked that he's speaking about, and the, the attention of the poor, he hears the cry of the afflicted, verse 28, for he hears their cry of the afflicted, and when he gives quietness, who can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him, whether it is against a nation or against or a man alone? When these men, wicked men, are oppressing now the poor and the afflicted now, and God hears them, who is it that can stand against God, whether it's versus a person or an entire nation, individual, or a group of people that can stand against God as he is now fighting now for the poor? That the hypocrites should not reign, lest people be ensnared. God is doing this because He doesn't want people to be ensnared, so He is removing those that He needs to remove. Now, verse 31, look at His advice for Job as He says this, For as anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I to do, uh, I do not see. I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Has anybody thought of this, that you should just try to confess? That I have sinned and say I will sin no more, saying, you know, tell me I, I didn't know the evil that I was doing. And, and now that I realize the evil that I was doing, I'm going to repent from it and do it no longer. Should you repay it, verse 33, according to your terms? Just because you disvow or just because you have rejected him, you must choose. And not I, therefore speak what you know. It's time for you to make a decision, Job. You choose now, Job. You must do it according to what you believe now. You rejected him. The choice is yours now. Now share with us exactly what you're going to do. And in verse 34 it says, Men of understanding say to me, Wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. <laughs> He's saying, he, you know what Job is speaking without knowledge? But he is speaking without wisdom. Which one's more dangerous? I'd rather speak with wisdom and have little knowledge, then try to speak with a lot of knowledge and absolutely no wisdom. Do you see why this is important? Because knowledge without wisdom doesn't edify anyone. And we go on and we see here in verse 33, his words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the uttermost. He's saying Job deserves this and I pray that he gets the maximum punishment of this treatment because his answers or like those of the wicked man, he is rebelling against God. He hasn't had enough. He hasn't learned his lesson, Job, here. For he adds rebellion to his sins. He claps his hand, or he's proudful among us, and, the, and multiplies his words against God. You know what he's saying? He opens his mouth with ungodliness and in vanity and vain. This is why, Job, this is why the Lord is not answering you, Job. And he's speaking about how great God is. The justice of God, the greatness of God. But although we learn the justice of God, the greatness of God, we should know that God is still concerned. He's not out of touch with His people. He's not out of touch with your prayers. He's not out of touch with our suffering. And sometimes we believe that God is out of touch with our suffering, with our trial, with our situation because of how great God is. He is not a distant God. He is a God that is near. He is not an unknown God. He is a God that is known to us through His Son and through the cross. And His greatness does not mean that He is beyond our reach or that He is not concerned about us. Therefore, we can say everything that we're going through and keeping our integrity is worth it. It is worth it. I want you to know that. 
There are times we look at the world and we say, you know, how can this be worth it? How can I remain pure? The whole world is, is evil or is wickedness and there is so much sin. What is it? What good is it for me to remain now following the Lord if I'm going to continue to undergo suffering? I, I, I want to encourage you, don't lose hope. Wait on God. Because this is exactly what, what Job is learning to wait on God because he notices your right living and he notices your faith. You know what stands out in a man and a woman going through trial? What stands out between a man of God and that man that is walking after the world is that the man of God in the trial, their faith is going to stand out. They're living rightly or their right living is going to be highlighted in those moments and they will continue to remain consistent in their integrity to the Lord. Now notice in verse, chapter 35, verse 1, Elihu says this, Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think it is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God? Do you think it's right that you can claim that you're right before God? Do you think this is right that what you're saying, for you say what advantage it will be to you? What profit shall I have more than I have sinned? Well, do you think it is right or what advantage that you're holding on to your convictions? Notice this, you are holding on to your convictions for the reason that it pleases God in every season. You're holding on to truth and righteousness for the reason that God is so concerned through you might not see that He is immediately now responding or intervening in your situation. It does not mean that He's not concerned. We sometimes we want a lot of, you know, just commotion and energy and all this stuff to know that the presence of God is here. You know, just because you don't see the, the, the commotion of this world does not mean that there is an absence of the presence of God. I think that we have to be careful to not confuse the presence of God with the energy of the crowd. There are a lot of times where we confuse the presence of God with the energy of the crowd. And if the crowd is going that way, that means the presence of God is going that way. Don't confuse the presence of God with the energy of the cloud, of the crowd. In fact, say, Lord, I don't want to follow the crowd. I want to follow the cloud. <laughs> Do you remember in the Old Testament how the, the nation of Israel, they were being led by a cloud? They were being led by a pillar of fire? What would it be if the church today say, Lord, I don't want to be following the crowd. I want to follow the cloud, your presence, your voice. Speak to us. Now notice here, as Elihu continues to say, verse 4, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look, verse, 30, verse 5, look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. Look at, you, you look at the, the, the grayness of God and look at yourself. How do, you think, how do you think that you measure up to God? No, we don't measure up to God. But in His Son, we are right before Him. We're not perfect, but in His Son, we are complete. <laughs> you notice how our identity is all about Jesus? In fact, He's reminding us how much our identity is in Christ and not in ourselves. If you sin, what do you accomplish against Him? Do you think that, that God gets anything out of you sinning? God is so great and, and He does what He wants and He does what He needs to do in our lives. Or if you transgress, or transgressions are multiplied, do you, what, what do you do to Him? If you are righteous, do you, what do you give Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? What, does He get anything out of you, Job? Whether you sin or you don't, you think He gets anything out of you. This is what He's saying. Your wickedness affects a man such as your righteousness, a son of man. You see, your wickedness 
And your righteousness only affects men. It doesn't affect God. It only affects the people around you. And in verse 9, what he's trying to point this picture of Job is that, that, that God is so much greater that he's not affected by Job or Job's standing before him. Therefore, Job should just realize that God's not going to answer him because he is a sinner. Notice in verse 9, verse 9 it says this, because of the multitude of oppression, they cry out. Who is he speaking about in verse 9, the multitude of oppression? The oppressed cry out, Elihu said. The oppressed cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? How come nobody's saying, where is God my maker? The oppression, why is it that when we're oppressed, we're not crying out, where is God my maker? And notice this in verse 10. This is so beautiful. Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Would you underline that? Because this is true. That when we are being oppressed, what should we do? We should be crying out to God. And he's saying, cry out to God. But cry out to God for repentance. Notice, we have to have the, uh, the attitude of, Lord, I want to cry out to you no matter what situation I'm in. In verse 10 he says, but no one says, where is my God my maker who gives songs in the night? This is amazing because it does remind us that God does give us a song in the night. What happened to Paul and Silas when they were being oppressed in jail at midnight? They started to pray and do what? Sing psalms. They had songs in the night. In Psalms 42 verse 8, write this down please. Psalms 42 verse 8. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, He shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. That's amazing. And in the night he will be with me. In Psalm 77 verse 6 it says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. When you are in dark moments in life, call to remembrance now the word of God as a song to you in a moment of oppression. And it says this, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. In Psalms 119 verse 62 the psalmist then says, at midnight, notice this, I will rise and give thanks to God because of your righteous judgment. God is so ready to give you a song in the night that you're able to listen to Him, Lord, even in the darkest times. In the times where I feel more loneliest, I know that you are so ready there to give me a song in the night. You know what a song in the night represents? It represents this one small word that carries a lot of meaning. It represents hope. It represents hope. I'm going to ask you, how many songs have you received from the Lord in the night? How many psalms? Have you cried out to the Lord in the night? You know, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. If God does, doesn't see fit to remove our burdens, He always gives us strength to bear them. A song to sing while we're doing it. Oh, isn't that amazing? If God doesn't see fit to remove that burden from us, He will give us strength to endure it. And while we will endure it, He will give us a song to sing while we're doing it. What is the song that we are singing? The song that we can trust in the Lord. That's exactly why we're going through suffering. Instead of complaining, why don't you sing a song? <laughs> Lord, give me worship. That, I may, that worship would be a weapon for me in this time. 
It says this in verse 11, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. This is what the Lord does for us. There they cry out, but He does not answer because of their pride. And God doesn't answer because of pride. There are times that maybe the Lord is not hearing our prayer because of pride. And this is exactly what He's telling them. He's teaching them this. Or He thinks He's teaching them at least that God doesn't answer because of pride. God doesn't answer because of wrong motives. Look what He says. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. God's not care about pride or about wrong motives. Or God sometimes doesn't answer because of lack of patient trust. I pray that we would not grow impatient. Do you, do you remember that in the Old Testament, as we've spoken about before, that the, the nation of Israel did not make the promised land? That generation didn't make it because of complaining and because of lack of patience and because uh, they were not grateful for the Lord? So it gave them a heart of rebellion. This is exactly what he's seeing. God's not going to answer that. Although you say to him, do, not, do you not, do not see him? Yet justice is before him and you must wait for him. Learn to wait for the Lord, he's saying. Learn for patience and now because he has not punished him in anger nor taken much notice of folly. You think that God doesn't notice you, but he does. Therefore, Job opens his mouth in vain, verse 16, and multiplies his words without knowledge. Now he's coming against his friend. What his friend needs right now, what his friend needs is to not know only the great justice of God, but in the great justice of God, I'm going to give you three final points. In the great justice of God, there's also great love of God. The great love of God. The great justice of God doesn't exist without the great love of God. In Ephesians 2, 4, it tells us this, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, God great in mercy because of His great love in which He loved us. Not only that, but also He is great in mercy. In Psalms 86 verse 13, it tells us, For great is your mercy toward me. You have delivered my soul from debts of Sheol. Great is your mercy towards me. And then finally, great is His kindness. In Psalms 117 verse 2, it says this, For His merciful kindness is great towards us. And it's truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What, is it, what does this mean for us? It means that today as we cry out for the justice of God, we also say, Lord, in your justice, give us your great love. In your justice, give us your great mercy. and your love, give us your great kindness. Because it is in the justice of God that is love his mercy and His kindness is available to us. It is in the justice of God that His love, that His mercy, and that His kindness is available to us. And I want to encourage you, maybe today you want to reach out to somebody and you want to talk to them about the justice of God. Talk to them about the love, the mercy, and the kindness of God because that's what restores us. That is what knowledge, how knowledge is used in wisdom. Talking about the love, the kindness, and the mercy of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord. And we ask, Lord Jesus, right now, Lord, by your Spirit, that we would realize, Lord, that yes, you are a just God, Lord. But in your justice, Lord, you are so ready to receive us.